Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. For the past few months, last, last couple months, we've been working through our fourth part of the Fullness of Life series, and we've been talking about warfare of the Spirit, right? Specifically, how we battle um, against Satan's schemes. I remember the first time I was in college and I heard about spiritual warfare. Um, I heard about this group that was praying over some people who thought they were dealing with some really specific intentional spiritual warfare and thinking to myself, these people sound nuts. This is nothing I've ever heard before. And then as I began reading the Bible and hearing more about Scripture and understanding, like, oh, this is a real thing. This is really happening. This isn't a figment of their imagination. Um, I started to wonder a little bit more about that. And it's one of the reasons I, I love the verses that we've been jumping into. Um, I, had, I had read the Bible, but I'd really never connected the fact that there is a battle happening behind the scenes all the time in an effort to stop people from coming to Christ or to draw people away from Him. I thought that this idea of spiritual warfare was just a way to explain away or to make excuses for sins that people couldn't deal with otherwise. Um, and that's part of the reason I love this quote that we've been reminded of each week uh, from Tony Evans. Spiritual warf- warfare is that conflict being waged in the invisible spiritual realm that is being manifest in the visible physical realm. Everything visible and physical is a result of something invisible and spiritual. Therefore, only by addressing the invisible spiritual cause can we fix what is wrong with our visible and physical lives. It's important to understand that there are evil forces at work within creation. Satan is not passively sitting on the sideline waiting for his turn or for people to call out to him. He is actively trying to stop the reconciliation and redemption process that God has initiated. At the same time, it's also important to be aware of the evil at work within the world. It, It is infinitely more important to know that we fight battles against an enemy that has already lost the war. Our souls belong to God. As we give our lives to Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. And although Satan can work against us, no one can stop our God from completing the work that he's already begun within us. The armor that we've talked about the past few weeks, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, all belong to God. It's armor that has been given to us by God as a gift, right? Based on His merit, on His glory, on His power, not on our own. It's part of that heavenly inheritance that we are set to receive that we've already begun receiving now. There are tools that we've done nothing to earn or to deserve, but God has given us knowing the battles that we will face. Each of those pieces of armor represent a characteristic of God that we're called to, sh- to show to the world and to use to go to battle against the forces 
um, that hope to stop God's plans. So let's jump into the scripture this morning. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. The last couple verses, we've been in this same scripture for uh, however many weeks are our pieces of armor. <laughs> uh, if you want to follow along this morning in your Bible, I'll give you a minute to get there. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen uh, behind me. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There are two words or ideas that come up a couple of times or or multiple times through those verses. That idea to to take up and the idea to stand. Christians are called to a life of active faith. James tells us that faith without works is dead. One of the commentaries that I read this week echoed a similar sentiment when it said the phrase, passive Christian is an oxymoron. It is not possible to become more like Christ and accomplish his will without intentional action. Leon Morris said, you can drift into sin, but not into righteousness. The armor that we've been talking about is a gift of God that's been given to us to be used. We need to pick it up, we need to put it on, and we need to use it so that we can stand against the devil. There is an action that is required, and part of that action is prayer. Now when I say that that required action is prayer, what I'm not saying is that you need to pray that God would give you each part of the armor. If your faith is in Christ, and you've already submitted your will to him, that he's already gifted you the armor of God. So it's not necessary to pray a prayer at God. Grant me the armor of God, the belt of truth, so I can stand strong for you. It might be helpful at times, but it's not necessary because it's a gift that you already possess. It's already been given to you. It's not a wrong prayer, but I don't think that that's what Paul is asking of us when he tells us to pray at all times. Or what Jesus had in mind when he challenged his disciples to pray. Last week, Pastor Brian was here to preach. He also spoke about prayer. And as he was speaking, I was thinking, man, this is a tough act to follow. This guy's got his stuff together. (laughs) He made some really strong points. And I wanted to reiterate a couple of those uh, before we jump further. The first one, there are a few prayers that he challenged us to avoid. The stuck on repeat prayers. Right? Those prayers where we try to sound really spiritual or maybe we get into a rut. 
and repeat God's name or God's name a bunch of different ways over and over again, right? The stuck on repeat prayers, the band-aid prayers, you know, those prayers that are, God, fix all my problems. Um, fix them prayers. The prayers where sometimes they're passively aggressive, passive aggressively trying to fix the person next to us by praying, God, do this in their life, <laughs> hoping that they'll hear us and fix it. Um, or the times when we hope God will fix those problems rather than us having to confront them head on. And then the autopilot prayers, the kinds of prayers where people can assume what we're going to say even before we say it because it's the same thing that we always say. <coughs> and the second thing, he challenged us to pray in ways uh, that challenge our comfortability. Specifically, God, take anything that is in me that is not of you and replace it with the fullness of who you are. That's a pretty big prayer to pray, but it's exactly what God wants from us. God, take anything in me that is not of you and replace it with the fullness of who you are. And looking back at those things, there's a pretty big distinction. In that first set of prayers, they tend to be more me-centered at times, they might be selfish. Um, you know, God, look at the words that I can use. Look at all the names that I know of you. I'm going to use them all just, just in case it makes my prayer more powerful. God, fix me. Remove my sin. Help me build a bigger house. Give me that promotion. You know, God, fix my spouse. Make my coworker more Christ-like. Make my boss more graceful and tolerant of my mistakes. Versus what he wants us to pray, God, I'm not sure how you want to use me, but here I am. Take me and mold me into exactly the person that you want me to be, right? Even if that means more social ostracizing, even if that means a smaller income, even if it means trading my lifestyle for something more simple, even if it means sticking with the iPhone 11 I have, through multiple upgrades rather than getting that first iPhone that comes out afterwards. Prayer, when you break it down, when you get to the heart of it, is communion with God. That's what it is. There's nothing wrong with, with asking God for things, but if our prayers tend to focus on ourselves, we need to ask the tough question, are our prayers for our sake or for God's? Prayer in this passage seems to be the thing that brings all the pieces together. Right? Maybe it's, it's almost like the glue in between everything that holds all of it together. It says specifically, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. It brings to memory verses like 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's easy to focus on the big prayers, right? The prayers that result in miracles. The prayers that are named in Scripture and in given word-by-word -word accounts in Scripture, 
And to forget that prayer is sometimes more than those things. Those prayers, in some cases, are really more of an exception than they are the rule. I liked last week when Brian says, sometimes we get discouraged or we quit praying because we don't see a return on our investment. And I've, I've found that to be true. Um, I was told early on in ministry that I spent too much time in my office in prayer uh, and, in, and in my Bible. And the reason that this person told me that was because they didn't see a return on that investment. There wasn't something physical happening immediately as I was praying, so it wasn't a worthwhile investment. And I think sometimes we kind of get into that same mindset. There didn't appear to be an immediate impact on our ministry, and therefore it couldn't be considered part of my ministry hours. I wish I could say that I ignored that person and, and continued anyway, but it's actually one of the habits that I've struggled to get back into consistently over time. Those prayers when we pray for big things are great. Sometimes God is calling us to that thing exactly to pray for the big things. But I think the prayer that Paul is calling us to here is a kind of prayer that goes on throughout the day. We can't spend our entire life having quiet time. We can't spend our entire life grabbing that coffee in the morning, sitting in our chair and praying or reading the Bible, whatever it is, as much as I'd like to, it just isn't realistic, right? We have to go to work. We have to help our families. We have to dress the kids in the morning. (laughs) We've got to make a living. The prayer that Paul is challenging us to is a constant, ongoing communion with Christ throughout the day. The kind of prayer that is nonstop. In 1614, Nicholas Herman was born in France. He joined the army at a really young age because he needed a semblance of a salary and he wanted some guaranteed meals because he had been in poverty in his whole life. And being in the army guaranteed those things. But in the middle of the winter when he was 18, he came across uh, this tree and it really struck a chord with him and he put his faith in Christ by seeing a tree which seems a bit odd, but God's been known to use some pretty out there ways of revealing himself to people, right? A giant fish, a burning bush, locusts and bloody rivers, talking donkeys. God's going to get our attention however he needs to get our attention. But seeing this barren tree somehow helped him to gain a high view of the providence of God and the power of God that kindled in him a love of God that he hadn't experienced before. Later, he left the army and he joined a monastery where he changed his name to Lawrence of the Resurrection. You may know him as Brother Lawrence. Uh, He wrote, uh, Practicing the Presence of God. He served the rest of his life in a kitchen, and he found peace in constant communion with God as he did his normal menial chores. He said, Men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind themselves of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet, it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier to do our common business wholly for the love of Him? Is it not quicker and easier 
to do our common business wholly for the love of him. He also went on to say, there is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. Those only can comprehend it who practice it and experience it. The strength of his faith and intimacy with God wasn't the result of a major miracle or supernatural experience His faith and his intimacy came from his constant communion with God that continued to build his faith and gave him the strength to be at peace in any and all circumstances. We've been given, as we've talked about the last few weeks, couple months, we've been given this awesome armor to use. But the truth is, we don't know how to fully utilize it unless we know who God is and what he wants for our life. We know we have it at our disposal, but unless we know who God is, and unless we know what he wants us to do, then how can we utilize it? One component of that is knowing the truth of who God is in the Bible. Right? That's the written word. We can read it. We can understand it. We catch a glimpse of who God is. The second part of knowing God and understanding his will for our life is knowing the truth of who God is at work in our life. And the only way to do that is to have this constant awareness of his presence. And I've found one of the best ways to do that is to be in constant conversation or communion, to focus our thoughts on him constantly throughout the day, no matter what the circumstances are, to frame things in that mindset of what would God want in this situation? There's a few things that Paul challenges us to specifically when it comes to prayer. The first thing is pray at all times. This is kind of what we've been talking about so far. Pray unceasingly. We should be in this constant communion with God. Philippians 4, 6, this passage that I referenced earlier, challenges us not to be anxious, but instead to bring everything to God in prayer. This passage in Ephesians is calling us to stand up, to be alert, to stand against the devil's schemes. This is one of the reasons that constant communion with God is so important. Without that relationship, we use our faith at times like an antidote to the problems that we face when we remember it's an option. When we're not in constant communion, We kind of forget about God until something, some sort of crisis creeps up in front of us, and then we remember it, and we use it like, if I just take this antidote, if I use this antidote to fix my problems, everything will be okay. But when we're in constant prayer, we're alert. We're prepared for the battle. We don't have to be anxious about it because we're in relationship with the creator of the universe. We understand that everything is already in his hands. Our faith leads us to a place where God is always alongside us, right? Always alongside us, not somebody that we have to run to in the end or run to and find because he's already there. The second thing Paul tells us is to pray in the Spirit. When we pray in the Spirit, the Spirit is interactive with us. Lots of surveys have been done that prove people pray but a lot of those prayers are about ourselves or they're for us. 
They're often boiled down to wish lists and prayers for protection. And believe me, I'm not knocking those things. Those are good things to pray for. But unfortunately, many of us wind up making that the majority of our prayers. And our relationship with God then becomes transactional instead of relational. Praying in the Spirit requires looking beyond ourselves and being guided into that, that unknown. Right? It, it requires looking beyond our immediate circumstances and allowing God to guide the words that we speak. It requires us opening ourselves to follow Him no matter what, no matter where it may lead us. Our prayers should be comprised of the, the full scope of human emotion and the human experience. Right? There should be moments of praise, adoration, empathy, times when we communicate guilt, confession, times when we communicate when we're angry, consecration, lament, contemplation, obedience. Right? That list could go on and on and on. In order to pray in the Spirit, we need to be willing to be fully open, to be fully vulnerable with God, and not just in the moments that we need something or when things are difficult, but even when things are going great. When we're just experiencing a normal day. Maybe it's not a great day, it's not a bad day, it's just a normal day. We're mowing the lawn or doing the dishes or playing ball with the kids, whatever it might be. What does communion with God in those situations look like? <clears throat> the third thing Paul challenges us or calls us to is to pray with all supplication. God wants us to bring everything to Him. So it probably has sounded at times like I'm knocking prayers of request and knocking prayers where we ask for things. I'm not trying to knock it. I'm just trying to help us understand that there's a balance. But Paul tells us it's important to bring everything. Right? Our, our request shouldn't make up the majority of our prayer, but he, he, God, does want to hear them. And not just the really big ones. Not just the ones where, where we think He is the only answer, the only one capable of resolving, but all of our requests, all of our needs. Right? There is no prayer that's too small for God to hear and no prayer that's too big for God to answer. I think sometimes we feel like certain needs aren't big enough to bother God with, but it's not a bother to Him. Right? That's part of a relationship. You just have communication. Right? Hannah and I don't share only the big moments of our life with each other. Sometimes we share every moment with painstaking detail, and at times there's probably moments where we're thinking, cool, hon, I really didn't need to know all of that. <laughs> Why? Right? That's not common, but once in a while, it definitely happens. Fortunately, we have a Father in heaven who is more than willing, who wants to hear everything from every moment in painstaking detail because He wants us to understand that we can have that level of relationship with Him. That He wants to hear that communication, that there's talking even when we don't need something. <laughs> And even when we do. So when Paul says bring every prayer and every supplication, he means it. Every single one. Every request from, dear God, no red lights on the way to work today, 
to, dear God, I really need you to remove, remove this cancer from my body. Right? And as humans, we understand that one of those prayers being answered is going to have a much more significant impact on our lives. But what I think we miss sometimes is they both contribute to us understanding the heart of God. They both contribute to us seeing Him as a true companion and not just some disconnected God who's up in heaven watching everything happen, intervening once in a while. But He is a God who cares all the time, not just some of the time. And fourth, prayer goes beyond ourselves. Right? Paul reminds the Ephesian church to pray for all the saints and to pray for him. As much as prayer is about a relationship between you and God, prayer <clears throat> should also open our eyes to see far beyond ourselves. It should be a reminder of all the other people who are, who are worshiping alongside us. Remembering that prayer is more is about more than my relationship with God. It should also give us the confidence to share our requests with one another and to pray for one another. James encourages the leaders of the church to pray for their people, even to lay hands on them and to anoint them with oil for the purpose of healing. Right? Jesus sent out his disciples, and at times demons could only be cast out by prayer. Paul frequently requests that his churches pray for him and the issues that he's dealing with. I think sometimes because churches have grown so much and because prayer times sometimes, unfortunately, have become an opportunity to gossip, we don't often share requests in our services anymore. And personally, I think that was probably a good move for the most part but what I don't think is a good thing is that as a result, many of us don't often take the time while we're talking after service or during the week to still share those prayer requests, to still ask for prayer, to ask specific people to pray for us. Right When we took that, that time out of our services, we should have replaced that with some time of sharing requests at a more informal time. But instead, we just cut it out. We just stop sharing. And as a result, I don't think we pray for each other as much as we used to. And I think that's something that has to change. And that's part of fellowship. That's part of being a community of believers. That's part of supporting each other and growing into the fullness of who Christ is as a church. So how then shall we live? All right, where does the rubber meet the road? And this is kind of a tough one this week. Not because there aren't a ton of applications for prayer. There are a hundred different ways we could go with this for how we should change our lives as a result. But it's difficult because there are a lot of applications related to this topic that we've heard before. We've heard probably all of them. Probably everything I'm going to say is something that you've maybe heard before. And for whatever reason, we've not taken the time or the initiative to really apply it to our lives. And I think, like Brian said last week, part of that is because we don't see a return on our investment. So those habits or those things that we try to change eventually fall to the wayside. I think that's true of a lot of things in our Christian lives, even things that 
don't have to do a prayer. That's a whole other topic for another day. So what should change in our lives today directly as a result of these verses we looked at this morning? The first thing is develop the maturity and wisdom to be effective in prayer. Develop the maturity and the wisdom to be effective in prayer. We hear things in Scripture like, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain to move, to hurl itself into the sea, and it would. Right? That's, that's out of Scripture. And we take that to mean time, at times that we should have the faith to move mountains. Sometimes that's true. Other times, Jesus is calling us to have the faith and obedience to accept the mountain by painfully climbing it. Right, have you ever climbed a mountain before? Anybody in here climbed, climbed some mountains, gone on a hike, high elevation? All right, we got a few. The view from the top is always amazing, right? It's always amazing. I have never once climbed a mountain, got to the top, and thought to myself, huh, kind of disappointing. <laughs> never has that happened. Right? The height always offers this, this new perspective on everything that I, I just came through. Everything from the bottom where I started to the top, it puts it all in a different perspective. Sometimes that prayer is required. The prayer that's required is, God, remove this burden and move this mountain aside. Sometimes that's true. And at other times, the prayer that's required is, God, give me the strength and walk beside me as I climb this mountain and open my eyes when I get to the top to see exactly who you are. Show me why I had to climb this mountain Give me a new perspective on the things that I'm facing. That's part of developing this maturity and wisdom, and part of that is being with God all the time. The second thing is evaluate the way that you view the Bible. In order to have that maturity and that wisdom, it requires developing a closer intimacy with God. Maturity and wisdom isn't always about how much you know. It's not about knowing every word in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's about how we understand God is speaking to us in each moment. And part of this is really affected by the way that we view the Bible. I love the way that Sky Jathani put it in his book, What If Jesus Is Serious About Prayer? I meant to bring it with me this morning, so if anybody wanted to borrow it, they could. Uh, If anybody wants a great book to read, um, see me next week. And I'll I'll let you borrow my book. Um, But he said this, do you see it primarily as a book of answers? Talking about the Bible, do you see it primarily as a book of answers? A guide to the way that you live your best life now? Or do you engage the Bible as a window through which you see and know God? If the Bible is primarily a manual, you'll find its value in prayer to be minimal. If you approach it as a window, however, it may be the most important way you learn to pray. If we see the Bible as we're reading it as a way to look into who God is, the promises that he has for us, his character, what he's done through history, to understand the heart that's behind all of those moments, that will dramatically affect the way that we pray. I'm definitely guilty of being that person at times who reads the Bible more as a manual than as a window into who God is. Especially, sometimes it's hard to separate reading the Bible 
you know, to pastor or to write sermons, <clears throat> from reading the Bible to catch a glimpse of who God is. Before the Bible was so readily available, people practiced what was called Lectio Divina, where they would hear the word read aloud, and then they'd reflect on a small part of that as they left wherever they heard it and throughout the rest of their day. <clears throat> now for, for those of you who are in discipleship groups, you know that we have hear journals. Sometimes I like to replace my hear journal for the day with something more like what they would practice in Lectio Divina, and this is what they did. The first thing, read the passage aloud. Right? They didn't have necessarily the written Bible or even the way to read the Bible um, because literacy wasn't what it you know, is now back then. So the first thing, read the passage aloud. And the goal isn't to read a large section. Maybe it's not even a full chapter. But read it out loud while being mindful of each word and phrase and trying to be aware of God's presence in that word. Right? You may need to read it more than once. The second step is meditate on the words. Right? Let the word or phrase guide your time of reflection and self-examination. Maybe ask the question, how does this passage apply to me in my circumstances? Right? Try to, to empty your thoughts and allow them to be replaced by God's. That's one of the things that's different in my experience with Christian meditation versus some other forms of meditation. Some other forms, it's about just emptying yourself of thought completely and trying to, to clear out the noise, which is not a bad practice. But in Christian meditation, as they're speaking about here, we try to empty our, our minds of all the noise, all the things that are going on, to make space so that God can replace it. Right, so that we can fill that time, that space within us with God's word, with God's promises, with God's love, so that as we go through our day, this idea of constant communion becomes that much easier. Third thing is speak. Once you've taken the time to read and to meditate, communicate your thoughts to God with words. And this is the, the beginning of what that continual prayer looks like. Right, maybe you're experiencing in your life gratitude for what God's done. Maybe you're experiencing worry in a way that you've not experienced before and you need help from that. Maybe you're experiencing joy or guilt. Right? Allow these thoughts to guide the way that you're responding to God. And then the last thing is simple. It's just contemplate. Right? When you feel like you're out of words, take a moment to just be still. Be still in God's presence. Be silent and open to what God may have to say to you and receive whatever that thing is, whether it be forgiveness, encouragement, assurance, motivation to get through your day, whatever it might be. And then our third response to how then shall we live, and this might seem at odds to some degree with the last one, Start forming a culture of constant prayer. The last one is kind of, to some degree, about removing barriers. And this may require building some back up. But we can't possibly spend all our time having quiet time with God. Right? As much as it feels like that's what we need sometimes. 
and as healthy it is, as it is to have good quiet time, we need to move to action as well. That quiet time should move us. Our, our, our lives as Christians should be characterized by moments of action that are guided by our quiet moments. As we develop this culture of constant prayer, like Brother Lawrence talked about, we'll begin to see God in things that we considered mundane and unimportant before. We'll take the moments without crisis less for granted, right? Sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, when there's not a crisis, it just feels like, oh, cool. That's a gift. (laughs) In the world we live in, a moment without crisis is a gift. And on the other hand, we'll be more prepared to respond with steadfastness when those crises do come. Creating forms and structures to facilitate this idea might be a little bit counterproductive, but as you're trying to foster this idea of a culture of um, constant prayer within your life or your family's life, it might be helpful to take some time each day to just reflect on five to ten moments where you experienced God throughout your day. Five, five, five times. And remember, nothing is too great or too small for for us to draw attention to that with God. Every one of those moments is reinforcing our faith in the relationship that we have with God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, (coughs) to take some intentional time this morning to look into your word and the way that um, you're speaking to us. I pray that as we go out through the rest of our week, that we'd begin developing this idea and understanding how it is that you communicate with us each day and how we can communicate with you. God, we love that you are a father who wants to hear everything. Not everybody has had a good experience on earth with with a father who cares, but you are a father who cares with every fiber of your being. And God, I pray that we would come to you often and that that relationship would continue to grow. God, I pray that you continue to bless our ministry here at FBC, that we would continue to have a great impact on our community, and that we would see more and more people coming to understand who you are and put faith in you in our community, Cadillac. In we pray. Amen.